Conversations from the heart unravels big and small ideas, developments, and breakthroughs in cardiology. From vital issues such as how to prevent cardiovascular disease to the latest in treatment and care for the millions of people affected by it, we take our listeners on an exploration journey. A journey towards stronger health systems and healthier hearts. Brought to you by the World Heart Federation and presented by Pablo Perel and Boriana Pervan, the podcast will feature conversations with practitioners, authors of key publications and discoveries, and people passionate about heart health. From our heart to yours, thank you for letting us in. Clinical work is absolutely crucial, but it's data that will guide that clinical work And if we look back, it's probably those data points that will change the landscape in cardiovascular health. For me, that paper really represents all that is good about research, how research can impact lives, can impact people, can create careers, how can bring people together, and then, of course, affect the patients through policy. Welcome to the second episode of our conversation from the Heart Series, brought to you by the World Heart Federation and its loyal heart warriors, Buriana Pervan and Pablo Perel. Today, we have the pleasure to speak with Dr. Liesel Zulke, a pediatric cardiologist in Cape Town, a leader in cardiovascular medicine and the African continent. If you check her biography online, you will find out that her major research interests lie in rheumatic heart disease and congenital heart disease. But today we will offer more than this to our listeners. We will find out from her more about her life, about her passions and fears, why she chose this path in life, what inspires her, and what she sees as a hurdle in her job and globally in public health. Welcome to the show, Liesel. Where do we find you and how are you today? Hi, Boriana and Pablo. You're finding me in my office at the moment, which is located at the moment in the Faculty of Health Sciences in Cape Town, South Africa. It's a cold, wet and rainy day in Cape Town. And we are probably towards the end of the day after quite a busy day here in Cape Town. Thank you. We journalists say it always starts with a story. So let's start (laughs) with your story. If you can tell us if there is a story behind your choices and really what made your path unique, and it is quite unique, and maybe you can share with us what was the toughest part. Well, I think the story starts when I was about three years old, apparently. I can't even tell you for sure because I don't even remember it because I was that young when I said I wanted to do medicine. I come from a region in Cape Town called the Cape Flats, which was where people of mixed race or non-whites were moved during the forced removals during the apartheid time. And my parents were of humble origins. Neither one of my parents finished school and neither of my sets of grandparents on either side even attended school. So it was quite an unusual thing at the time for a young girl of three to say, I want to do medicine. And I was very clear that that's what I wanted to do. My parents tell the story of how I used to operate on the teddy bears and the dolls and even perform heart transplants and put pieces Mm -hmm. of interesting material inside them and sew them up. So somehow there'd always been this idea of cardiology, an interest in that area, I suppose, 
perhaps due to knowing about Chris Barnard as I was growing up, but I was always absolutely convinced that medicine was my path. Pediatrics was my particular passion. And then once I started doing pediatrics, cardiology was where I found my sweet spot. Was that an easy path to follow? Look, coming from the background that I did, it took a lot of sacrifice on behalf of my parents to be able to financially get me through high school so that I could get to medical school. A lot of belief in the big dream, not only from my family, but my extended family and even my community. And I did my matric or my final year of school in 1985. All South Africans will know what that year was. It was a year of great political unrest. And in particular, it was focused around schooling. And the mantra was either liberation before education or liberation through education. And so pupils in that year had to make the decision whether they would write their final school year exams or be more involved in the political situation. And Families like ourselves had to make very serious choices. We chose to write our exams, but at the same time, both of my sisters didn't. And so it was a very personal decision. It was based on where I was wanting to effect change in my life and in my community, but it really was not an easy choice at the time. I think I was always had my eye on that goal and my family felt that they needed to support that goal just as we were supporting what was happening in the country politically at the time. So it was liberation through education. That's the one you chose. That's the one we chose, yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. I did mention at the beginning about your major interest in rheumatic heart disease. Why did you choose rheumatic heart disease? And why also you decided to go beyond just treating the disease, the clinical aspects of it, but actually elevating the issue of prevention on a global level and advocating for it? Yes, I think we can all remember a particular patient or a particular scenario that maybe sparked off a research interest or even a clinical interest. And I remember as a medical student looking so forward to the first delivery. So delivering your baby for the first time. And we have quite a significant birth rate in our country. So you normally get to do lots of deliveries. And it's really a wonderful way of getting yourself into medicine. And I remember one of the patients that I had to what we call special, which means you spent all the time looking after this particular patient. And she was a lady with mitral stenosis. And it was diagnosed very late in her pregnancy. And so she became quite unwell as the labor progressed and actually ended up deteriorating quite significantly after the baby was born and ending up in the high care unit. And that already piqued my interest to say, well, why did we not make this diagnosis in this woman? What made labor such a difficult and dangerous period for her? And what would happen now? She was a young lady, new baby, And she needed either heart surgery or a valvuloplasty. So I think that started piquing the interest. And I never forgot that particular experience. But as a pediatrician, one also had many patients with rheumatic heart disease. And another young lady was one that I met around about the time of her eighth birthday. She is now a mother, um, about 26 years old, and we're still in very close contact. And those kind of experiences really 
gave me a heart for the issues around rheumatic heart disease, around the clinical aspects, around the need for prevention, and around the need for advocacy. But it was again then another colleague that really sparked my interest and my involvement. And that was the late Professor Bargani Mayosi, who was a very dear friend and colleague and my PhD supervisor. And I was involved in a project with him and working so closely with somebody who was so engaged, energetic and committed to the cause really made me want to contribute as much as I possibly can. And it became a passion during that time. And it still is. Thank you. So I move into some details of the research you've done, Liesl. You have an incredible output in terms of research on RHD. You've been working on this for many years. So I'm going to ask you a question that it is quite difficult because I want you to tell us. Of course, you cannot choose which is your preferred research, but which are at least a few of them that you think have been more impactful. And if you can share with us some of those key research that you've been involved in and why. Well, thank you for that question, Pablo, because as you say, it's a difficult one to answer, but in some ways, maybe not so. And I think the immediate response is the remedy paper. The first paper that came out in European Heart Journal in 2016, and that paper actually was the culmination of maybe four or five years of work. It was one of the papers from my PhD. But much more than that, I think it was the culmination of collaboration, of working across the 25 centers, the 14 countries, the people involved in each one of those centers and countries, getting to know them, working with them, I not only wrote the paper, we were also critically involved in coordinating every part of that study. And we can tell wonderful stories of doing quality improvement on paper CRFs at the back of a conference venue in Uganda, doing QCs in Sudan. I mean, there's just so many stories we can tell of this RHD community that came together to be able to do the research and then finally write the paper and the impact that that has had to really show people what the lives, the morbidity and the mortality is of those living in low and middle income countries with tertiary level rheumatic heart disease, I think will be felt for many years to come. The connections made within that paper will also be very important. And of course, that paper led in a way to the African communique, to multiple other policy documents, and ultimately to that 2018 WHO resolution. So for me, that paper really represents all that is good about research, how research can impact lives, can impact people, can create careers, how can bring people together and then, of course, affect the patients through policy. I think you know the story of how we disseminated the information from that paper. When we realized how important the data was, we presented it to Professor Mayosi and he said, well, we should tell the patients about this first. So let's have a party for all our patients. And at that stage, I think we'd enrolled over 600 patients at our hospital. And the idea was like, how would we do this? 
But we ended up doing exactly that. So we presented the data first to our patients before we presented it at the European Society for Cardiology. And that sparked also a whole different level of engagement with our patients and our patient activists. So for me, that paper really stands out. But I have to say there are a few others that stand out in this area as well. The one is the screening paper for subclinical rheumatic heart disease that we wrote together with colleagues in Jima in Ethiopia. And I'll never forget that journey between Addis Ababa and Jima, which is about six, seven hours journey, and then screening patients in rural Jima together with co-PIs. So it really was a indicative of working together alongside our colleagues and how much that has meant to me. That's interesting. And you're bringing, I mean, an aspect of research that I agree it's key. It's a process of doing the research and the engagement with our community of researchers, but also, I think, of course, you bring Bongani, who has been an inspiration, I think, not only for cardiologists in Africa, but worldwide and researchers worldwide with kind of innovative approaches to dissemination, which I think is great. I want to bring you to one of your latest collaborations that it was done with WHF, this paper that was published in the Lancet um, Global Health recently about investment case for RHD. What is your take? I mean, some of the high-level messages of that paper is go a little bit against of maybe what we were expecting in terms of particular primary prevention and so on. Can you summarize first what the paper says and, and what are the implications of that paper on your view? Yeah, I think what the paper said, which I think is what you're referring to, which was a little bit different, is the investment case for the different levels of prevention. So the thinking had always been primary prevention would save, in essence, the most amount of money or be the most cost effective, as opposed to something like surgery or secondary level intervention, which costs more at the beginning but perhaps don't reap as many rewards. And what we were able to show in that paper was the importance of context-specific programs and interventions. So in countries where you don't have a surgical program and where the major issue is actually preventing acute rheumatic fever, that's very different to a country where there are the beginnings of a surgical program or even a well-established program and where intervening at that level will actually be more cost-effective. So I think what it really showed, I think a few things. The first is that rheumatic heart disease is still very much an issue and needs the kind of attention that it's getting at the moment. But secondly, that global health is about health equity and that in health equity, we have to look at the different contexts, what is available in different countries and speak to those issues and intervene at different levels. So there's no one size fits all. And in particular, low and middle income countries are each one of them very different, very different resources, very different approaches. And I think this paper brought that out maybe more than any other paper had done so before. And then for me, the other thing is that we need a joint collaboration to consider what the appropriate intervention is within a country or a region. And so suggesting, for example, that surgery is the answer across all of these countries is also not what this paper is saying, but rather that we need to think very carefully, consider the context, and then see what resources one has and apply them appropriately. 
So I think a very important paper, not only for the numbers, but also to map out what is required over the next 10 years, but to do that in a very context-specific way. Thank you. That was very clear. So moving forward in terms of research, as I said, you're one of the world experts on RHD. You've been working on this for many years. Again, I'm going to ask kind of difficult question. I mean, if you can give us and share with us, what do you think are one of the key priorities now in terms of research for RHD? We always talk about better data, more data, data in areas where we have gaps. And so those things still all apply. So yes, we've got much better data than we've ever had before, but we certainly need more of it. We need more granular data and we need data from different areas. But it's also time to start thinking about changing and affecting change. So we need to have more research in interventions and what we can do and how we can apply them. We know, for example, that certain interventions work. We know how penicillin works, but we need to think sort of in a more clever and innovative way about those interventions so we can affect change on more people. We know medical treatment can at least alleviate some of the problems related to heart failure in rheumatic heart disease patients, but we're not studying those kinds of interventions. So I think we have to think not only just more and better, but very targeted data points. I think we need it across the spectrum, and it's a great thing to see a whole lot new researchers in this area, a lot more commitment, a lot more interest. We need both discovery, so we need more data around vaccines, around what is the mechanism of going from ARF to RHD, but then we also need ways to make the lives of those affected by rheumatic heart disease better. So I'm just asking for more data, more researchers, more people, more funding, and let's really attack this disease from all fronts. Yeah, I mean, you have definitely WHF supporting this important agenda. I want to take you outside RHD for a minute and as a pediatric cardiologist. In general, when we think about cardiovascular disease, we focus on adults and we talk about prevention in adults. And of course, we know that cardiovascular disease is a cumulative disease and risk factors start early in life and behavioral and attitudes start early in life. I mean, are we doing enough looking at cardiovascular disease with a life course approach? And if not, what should we be doing more? Yeah, I think you've touched on two things. So you've talked about prevention to ensure that you don't develop adult-related cardiovascular disease. And then there's also the other issue of childhood-onset cardiovascular disease. And so I've been working in both of these areas, less so adult-onset cardiovascular disease because we're talking about well patients or well children, but I think both of these are absolutely critical. So one area that I've been working in is congenital heart disease or other diseases that are acquired, so not just rheumatic heart disease, but HIV-associated disease, for example. But you're absolutely right. The antecedent of all cardiovascular disease, I believe, are in young children. The first thousand days sets the scene for your cardiovascular health for the future. Issues around well-being, around nutrition, around exercise, around a safe built environment. All of these things actually coalesce in adulthood. So I personally think that we focus on the end game instead of right at the beginning where we can do something. And prevention and the preventative agenda in childhood, I believe, is absolutely critical. 
However, in a way, it is not the gambit of a pediatric cardiologist. So that's also we're, we're dealing with almost the end of the spectrum. So this has to be at the level of general practitioner, at you know your nurse practitioner dealing with families, even at the antenatal period or your newborn period. So we certainly encourage that this whole group of people get involved so we can build and strengthen those first thousand days so that you actually have the best possible platform for health going forward. Thank you. Thank you, Liesl. There were a few things that struck me, what you said about, it's not just about gathering data, obviously it's very important, but it's about how we use data to affect change. And I think that's where storytelling comes in <laughs> because the way we relate to stories, the way stories make us see what others see and make us feel what others feel and make us jump beyond our boundaries is extremely important if we want to affect change. And from a very early age, as you say, we are forever grateful for people like you who are absolutely ambassadors and advocates for that change on a both emotion-driven and data-based prevention. And the other thing that struck me is the big picture about health equity in the end. And related to that, but maybe you will tell me it's something else. I want to imaginary bring you forward to the same conversation. We're having the same conversation, but it's 10 years from now. And we have a bit of grayer hair. We are a little bit wiser. <laughs> and I ask you, which, according to you, has been the most important achievement in cardiovascular disease and in health in general? What would your dream response be? Gosh, that's quite a question, especially in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. I think that perhaps just the understanding of the importance of data. We understand as I'm a clinician, and I feel sometimes at my heart, I'm a pediatrician and clinical work is absolutely crucial, but it's data that will guide that clinical work, will inform where that clinical work should go, should inform our practice. And if we look back, it's probably those data points that will change the landscape in cardiovascular health and in cardiovascular medicine. If we look back 10 years from this point, we can pinpoint some of those key changes that have happened because of collecting data. And I think the two are interlinked. It's not only that data informs clinical practice, but in your clinical practice, you realize which data points you need to collect. I think we're living in such a fascinating, horrendous time at the moment where we look at how trials are being conducted differently, how we can move from results immediately into impact that changes and saves millions of lives, how we can collaborate differently, how global agencies can actually start studies. I mean, these are all very new things for us with things like the recovery trial, solidarity trials, etc. So I think in 10 years time, we're going to hopefully look back on this time and say it gave us an opportunity to link clinical questions with data, but hopefully do it in a way that we collaborate, where we think about equity at the central of all of this, and that the objective is to improve the lives of everybody, not just the lives of your particular patients or your particular country. 
Yeah. And and 10 years from now, your son, who is now studying medicine, will be practicing it. So he will be part of that movement to improve health globally. And hopefully, I mean, the WHF Observatory, but in 10 years, well, Settler will be helping to this important agenda. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, passion, and I'm sure you are an inspiration for many people around the world, Liesl. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Liesl. Thank you. It's really nice to be with you both. Thank you. And there it was, the second episode of our brand new podcast, Conversations from the Heart. We hope that you enjoyed it like we did. Stay tuned for the next one and stay healthy. From our heart to yours, thank you for letting us in and goodbye.